Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have James Schofield. James has been around the off-road industry for quite a while. We'll get into his long history. He's been all over East Coast, West Coast. And uh, actually, he was part a participant or actually witnessed one of the funniest moments in uh, my off-road career. And we'll discuss that. That happened in Alabama at a race. And uh, James, thank you for coming on and spending some time with us and talking about yourself. Man, I appreciate you uh, having me on the show. So let's uh, let's just jump right in and get started. And where were you born and raised? I was born in Annapolis, Maryland. Grew up in a little town outside of that called Gambrels, Maryland. Uh, went to grade school there up to fourth grade. And then uh, my parents divorced and my mom moved to Alabama and... Uh, my two older sisters and and I ended up living with my mother, so we moved to Alabama in like ninety one or something like that, and uh, grew up through the rest of elementary school and middle school and high school in Alabama, and then uh, the real world hit when you have to get a job. And <laughs> <laughs> well, before we like get that. into all that, let's uh, let's let's explore your childhood a bit. Um, okay. You said Maryland, outside of Annapolis. Yep. Was it rural or was it more suburban? Um, I would say back then it was probably pretty... I would say that town back then probably didn't have that many people in it, but today it, it's probably the same size as Annapolis. And, okay. You know, with everything the way the world is right now with growth. But uh, back then I would say it was kind of a small town for sure. And uh, did you have to walk to school? Did you get a ride yeah, to school so or bus? part about that, that neighborhood that my parents lived in, the, the, the school was like 
behind the neighborhood, so you could walk to school. Um, they didn't have the bus. Like, we lived so close that you didn't have to take a bus or your parents drop you off. You could just, you know, my parents would go to work before we left to go to school, and then my parents would just assume that we made it to school every day. So more what, like when I grew up, it, we called, I guess what we call it now is latchkey kids. You'd go to, you'd get yourself off to school and then get back and uh, get home and hopefully have your homework done before you went out and played with your friends exactly. and your parents got home. <laughs> That's right. And then if the streetlights came on and you weren't home, that was, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> you you knew what your timing was. Exactly. So uh, what about Alabama? Was that uh, rural as well? So we moved to a small town called Eufaula, which is um, not a very big town. It's more of like a three or four red light type town and um, very like farmland type, you know, uh, I guess like industry there would be more like paper mill farm type stuff or uh, like building buildings, like uh, prefab buildings for like uh, metal building shops and stuff like that, but um, not a very big town. So Play rural anything. again. And what did you, yeah. uh, same thing there, walk to school, bus? How was um, it? So in uh, elementary school, I had to take a bus, which we could walk to the middle school, and then the bus that dropped off middle school kids would take you to the elementary school, so... Um, and then once I finished fifth grade and we went to sixth, seventh and eighth was middle school down here. So you could just walk to school and then walk home. And then the high school was kind of directly across the street from the middle school. So not a very big, you know, drive or walk to school either way. Okay. But uh, once I got to high school, I drove. So Excellent. So then... What uh, what kind of things did you do as a kid besides school? How did you yeah, how did you occupy how did you occupy your time? So I guess like in um, like middle school was just you know playing outside because my mother didn't allow you to kind of come in and out of the house a million times in one day, or she would just kind of lock the door after you walked outside so it was kind of you're out you're out until your time to come in and just hanging out with friends you know a lot of that doesn't seem to happen nowadays but you could tell whose house to go to on your way home from school just by where the bikes were and stuff like that in certain people's yards so a lot of that is kind of gone by the wayside but that's what we did. You would walk home and you would pass through your, you know, certain yards or whatnot, and then you would stop and hang out for a little bit. But when you got back to your house, you had to do your schoolwork or whatnot. But and then once I got to high school, so middle school I played football, seventh and eighth grade, and then once I got to high school, man, you were just trying to figure out what what you were doing with yourself, and you know, football was the only thing that's really big down here. Um, as far as sports go. So if you didn't play football, basically you're a nobody in, in the South, as bad as it is. But <laughs> that's kind of how it is. And lucky enough, I got to play football. So um, when there wasn't football going on, like the coach would make you do like 
track and field just to keep you doing something or soccer, just trying to keep you in shape to where you're not starting over from scratch at the you know spring training when it comes around. And what but, position uh, did you play? I played uh, nose guard and defensive tackle and then uh, did long snapper for like field goals and punts. Oh, nice. You yeah. can make a career just out of being a long snapper. A hundred percent, man. A hundred percent. And how did you guys do as a as a school or team in your your conference or so, division? So in my high school, we were between what they call a five A and a six A school. For the majority of my high school year, I think we started out when I first got into high school. I was like a six A school, and then once we got once I got to like a tenth grader. I want to say we went down to 5A, and then we finished out 5A school based on size. But we ended up finishing, I think we got down to like the semifinals in the in the state, which was doing pretty good back then. You know, like, in my opinion, we were we were doing it. You know, we were winning, winning your regionals and stuff like that. But then, like, when you had to play the bigger schools from out of, you know, out of, out of town, it was kind of a, you're playing against teams that are basically all they do is football and well they have a lot bigger draw so the chance of them having premier athletes is better when they have a larger draw to you know pull a team from (laughs) exactly that's that's good though so what did you learn about life when you look back on your your football days in say grade school and high school I would say the like the biggest thing that I kind of got out of uh you know football and stuff like that is being a team sport is, is you can't quit. So um uh, you can apply that to just about anything whether it is you know building parts or building a buggy or working on something like you're going to go through the every emotion you can possibly have in any kind of challenge that you're doing, but don't quit, you know, just keep going just because you're down a couple, you know, touchdowns or points or whatever, the game's not over until it's over. And I've been a part of a many races or race teams that have had that kind of bad luck. You feel like you can't do anything. And then you come out on the other end as a winner and it's because you, you don't quit. Right. You know? Once you commit, no quit. Yeah, Exactly. And Better how were you as a student? I was terrible. Um, really? <laughs> just being honest with you, like I hated school as much as uh, anybody else that was looking forward to after-school activities of some sort or chasing a girlfriend or whatnot. It, I didn't do. I didn't excel in really anything um, except for math. Like that to me is weird because. Out of everything else, I figured math would be like the worst thing I would be good at, but uh, I use that every day, you know, so figuring calculations out and stuff like that, that's what I use the most every day, which is surprising, and looking back, it's, I just never really paid attention, I was too busy just having a good time instead of trying to focus, that was being the class clown or whatever you want to call it, was you know, way more fun than paying attention. Right. <laughs> a lot of us suffered that. <laughs> exactly. So I guess you could say I have what they call ADD, like crazy. But um, 
to me, I just grew up with it. So I would rather have everybody laughing than have to have a study class, you know, like. Where you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Right on. So back in those early days, what was your modes of transportation before you got a car? Did you have Um, bikes or what did you do? Yeah, bicycles. Just bicycles and skateboards and stuff like that. But like the roads in Alabama are very rocky asphalt, not real smooth. So there's not a, you know, using a skateboard on the roads isn't the best. Bicycles is what we use the majority of the time. It's a decent sized neighborhood that we lived in. So you could kind of bike from one person's house and one side of the neighborhood to the other, all the way back to your house. And it wasn't too bad. And do you still carry friends from that that era, from, say, high school? Yeah, I've got, I would say, like, I think there was like 170-something people in my graduating class. I would say that I'm probably still pretty decent friends with about 40 of them, you know, but everybody's kind of grown up and gone into something else or, moved off or doesn't even look like they used to look. So I wouldn't be able to pick them out in the crowd. Right. So have you ever, so you've not gone back to a high school reunion? I went to my 10th year reunion and it wasn't terrible, but you know, there's a lot of people that should have in, you know, by the social standards should have been successful in high school, right out of high school. And, you know, now they work at Walmart. I'm not knocking that, but like they were, you know, on the bigger and better things and then they end up working at a Walmart. So it's kind of like interesting in my opinion on how people end up, you know, what life choices they made and how they ended up where they end up. Yeah, that's true. It's, uh, it's been interesting. You know, it's been a long time since I've been in high school, but right. it's very interesting to see. I'm, I still got my two closest friends from high school that I communicate with all the time. And then one guy from college and then got people that I didn't communicate with in, in high school because of social media have now become extended friends. And some of them I met, you know, we reintroduced each other you know, to each other. And we weren't even friends in high school, but because of, uh, having the, the 49er season tickets and mm-hmm. selling those that people would come in, you know, from the, you know, from the school, cause we were all nine, most of us were Niner fans having grown up in that area and, you know, guys buying tickets so they can go to the games. And it's kind of, uh, it's interesting to see what people are, are doing, you know, for sure. And and (laughs) one of the things that blew me away is how many people, how many of the kids that I went to high school with had passed away within probably the first 10 years. Wow. It was kind of crazy. Yep. So what did, uh, high school, um, where did you, uh, what'd you do after high school? Um, after high school, uh, I went to work at like a, more or less like a mom and pop style trucking company and uh just trying to learn the ropes of like working on big trucks and stuff like that and then 
I worked there for like two years and then went to Kenworth and went through their kind of program to get you into being able to work on the, basically on the line doing truck work. And I did that for a while and the whole blue torch thing came about and then it was just like a after hours after your day job and you know a couple nights a week we were doing something under the blue torch name and then once it got sustainable to support you know myself and dan we both kind of quit our day jobs and did that so when did you when did did you and dan go to school together or did you live in the same neighborhood no i met dan in uh dothan which is like an hour or so south of Eufaula, that I, that's the town I grew up in. And, uh, you know, I had a Jeep Cherokee that had a big lift on it and 35s and all that kind of good stuff. And he was doing a bunch of trail Jeeps and stuff like that. And rode by, saw a shop one day and kind of hit it off and then started doing odds and end jobs for him on the projects that he was doing before it was even a business. And then it kind of, turned into, you know, if we make this bracket as a sellable item, it would be, you know, you basically hit print at a laser shop and then the next guy would want the same cage or the same truss or the same tabs. And then kind of the rest is history from there. Okay. Let's talk about your first vehicle. Okay. What was, what was the first vehicle you got to drive? Uh, 81 Chevy Malibu. 81 Chevy Malibu. Now there's a chick getter. I'm telling you, man. So the cool part is is I was 16 long before a few of my buddies were. So that was the car we got to get around in. And, you know, looking back, the car was nothing to write home about, but it it served its purpose, man. And it was like it kind of brought everybody together where you didn't have to have, you know, some – high-end car to be a cool kid basically you just had to have four wheels and tank of gas and everybody would get along and i treated that car terrible for what it's worth it did many dirt roads at 80 miles an hour and (laughs) i wonder it stayed together but then i got into a a jeep cherokee so like a 93 jeep cherokee four-door and it was nice you know, good change. I had AC and all that kind of stuff and wasn't carbureted. So it would run kind of any day of the week, no matter what you did. And started putting a lift on it and stuff like that. And I, I want to say I probably put two or three different lifts on it. And then I ended up with a rock crawler long arm kit when they first came out and put 35s on it and stuff like that. And then got into the lock rights and stuff and you start figuring out how weak a 30 and a 35 actually are and kind of got to tone back your driving style a little bit, but <laughs> especially when you got to drive it on the street every day after you're done wheeling it. So, And what was your wheeling like in that area? Um, for a Jeep Cherokee, there was very minimal that you could do without just trying to yard sale your Jeep to get to where you're going, but there was a couple groups that we had, like some guys were on 39s or 38s back in the day and, you know, cut boggers and stuff like that that you would ride with. But you could take like the, you know, more bypass trails where you could actually go to the trail, watch them do their thing while you took the 
leaf looker bypass trail, but you know some of those are even pretty stout. But down here in the south, and once it's wet, like you have to stay kind of committed into you're willing to yard sale this thing just to get out of certain spots because of the, the mud that's here. You know, there's not that much traction, so you got to have some oomph behind whatever you're driving and willing to dent body panels just to get out. So after Kenworth, you got hooked up with Dan and started yep. working there. And yep. uh, was that the old, was that the, was, wasn't a gas station. It was like an old car dealership or something, wasn't it? No, so the first shop was the back of a forklift shop. So, like, they sold forklifts, and they did, like, forklift repairs on the front side. And we ran it. I want to say it was maybe 1,800 square feet or 2,000 square feet, if that, from the back of this guy's shop. And it was perfect for, like, two vehicles, and you had room to work, kind of, but... uh everything had to be put inside every night type of situation. So if you had something tore apart, everything else that you moved in and out had to be able to be brought back in. But, you know, we built this, I want to say we probably did five or six buggies out of that shop. And then we moved to a more legit shop, which was, uh, I want to say it was probably 15,000 feet or 12,000 feet. And we rocked that for a few years in like the early I would say like 03, 04, 05, and then we moved to another shop, which was across from the high school in Dothan, so we could get kids from high school that would like intern after school, you know, cutting tube or cleaning up type of, type of you know, doing odds and end jobs, being more of a helper, but right. um, we did that till like 07. I ended up leaving and going drag racing <clears throat> full time. You know, I always had a kind of a passion for drag racing because my parents raced as a kid and I kind of wanted to get back in it, but not at a bracket level, like a bracket racer style racing. I would rather try to do like the big show stuff and ended up getting picked up and got a full deal with a guy out of California and, uh, I ended up leaving Blue Torch and did a full solid year. I want to say it was like 22 or 23 races we did that year. And um, you kind of have no life because you're chasing the next racetrack. That every day you're going somewhere to the next track or you're servicing after a race on the weekend to <clears throat> go to the next race that you got to be at by Tuesday afternoon or something. And So everything was either shop or racetrack? Correct. Yeah. And uh, where was that at in California? That was out of Ontario. Okay. So, like, east of Pomona. Yeah, east of Pomona by, like, 15 minutes. And Right. So the guy I went to work for, his father-in-law is, like, one of the lead manufacturers in the drag racing world for making cylinder heads and engine blocks and rocker arms and stuff like that. So took a job with him as a like you're going to learn something instead of you're just going to take this off and put this on only and nobody's ever going to show you anything else and you know I took it and I worked with him till about 2018ish 19 and uh just fly in help after a couple of years of full-time work and it it worked out really well you know I ended up coming back to Blue Torch when uh 
Jason Carner bought it and uh, came back to Blue Torch, and he and I kind of ran it from, I would say, yeah, it was probably 2008 to, I went to Trail Gear in 2011 or 12, something like that. Okay. And, you know, just trying to make sure that you're not leaving something on the table where you're working for somebody for something, but you're not getting ahead. And just, we didn't disagree on anything. Dan, Dan and myself or Jason and myself, it was just more like, see what else is out there. What other opportunities there were. So Right. When, when opportunities are presented. Yeah. When they make sense and they check all the boxes that you require, then you kind of have to make that decision. And luckily, you know, April and I, my wife, and we had one, our one son at the time and, our only son of time, but uh, he was young enough to where it was not a big deal to move because he wasn't in school or anything. So it was like it wouldn't it wouldn't be a bad idea to try it. You know, everything made sense. So she found us a place to live out there, and we move out there and quickly realized that Fresno, California, is not for me. And um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't do my due diligence on everything in regards to Fresno but um you know like a pre-checklist of what am I getting myself into with this move and it it worked out for the year we did a bunch of racing and kind of got Matt more squared away on his race program and then um I moved back to Birmingham once uh, Blue Torch moved to Birmingham and uh, Jason has is, had gotten a big building, and you know we moved back to I moved back into Blue Torch like I never left, and ran it until it was sold to uh, Peter Basler, and then uh, yeah, I guess like in 2019 or 20 it ended up shutting down or whatnot, but uh, you know that's kind of the history of the blue torch situation. <laughs> okay. And so when, when did you, when did you meet your wife? Uh, 2008. 2008. So after school, you're at, yeah. And you met her where and how? Uh, here in Birmingham, she worked at a, um, Logan's roadhouse. Ah, and, um, okay. Yeah. I used to be like a big gym rat and, I ate a really clean diet and all that kind of crap, so I would splurge on Sundays, and I would go eat at her at that steakhouse on Sundays, and she was a waitress, and kind of the rest is history, you know, from that point, but... Trying to make it so you didn't have to pay a tip, huh? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I've just been paying her bills forever now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome. So then, let's... Let's explore the the racing aspect of of your life. Um, okay, you know, let's let's jump into that that drag racing time. Okay, um, so in high school, <clears throat> I worked at a like a like a Jiffy Lube, if you want to call it, like an oil change shop, and uh, that company had a drag boat team that they raced two different style drag boats um a jet boat and a v-drive boat which run like a traditional big block chevrolet you know 
five, six hundred horsepower, and then they had another one that had a, it was probably a thousand horsepower boat, but, um, that, that was fun for a little while. And then when I got to working at that, um, truck shop right out of high school, the guy that was kind of the foreman had a buddy that raced an alcohol funny car. And growing up, when I grew up, those were like, the next best thing to a top fuel car and, you know, same kind of body, same power plant, just a different type of fuel and not as much horsepower, but still an, an ungodly amount of power for what you're trying to do. But so we got hooked up with this guy and, um, we would go match racing, which used to be a really big thing. And, you know, you would go to a race and it would be a you know, quick eight show or something like that, where they'd take the top eight qualifiers or fastest guys of the, this weekend they're going to race together tonight, you know, and just kind of picking up a wrench where you can and doing whatever somebody asks you to do, just kind of getting your foot in the door to where you can kind of come back next race and do the same job without somebody having to explain to you what you're doing or how to do what you're doing and, you know, move my way up from that. And then this guy started racing a little bit more, serious and would would race uh more of the divisional races uh with the nhra and um we would go to the division races and we would we would qualify really well we would probably lose second round normally and it kind of sucked but the guy that we would normally lose to was like the man in the class and later on down the line that's the guy i ended up going to work for forever and it was basically I met him in Vegas at a national event and told him I want to go do this for real and not kind of just play at it. And, and he's like, well, good, because I'm looking for a guy next year. I, I know you're from back east in the southeast, and I'd like to maybe put something together and you work on my car. So working with him, he showed me a bunch of stuff, of the right ways of doing things, and then everything I learned, just leave it in your bag, don't use it, just kind of do it the way we do it. And then I'll explain to you why you do it the way you do it, the way we do it. So if there is an issue, you'll find it before it becomes a problem. You know, at 270 miles an hour, there's, there's issues that happen, but you don't want it to happen on a track. So you, you know, you're kind of a one and done deal. If, if you, whatever job you're doing, if there is an issue with it and it comes apart, it, you know, wrecks a car, totals a car out, or you blow up something. Things happen at a crazy speed, and uh, a lot of that stuff is fixable before it ever becomes a problem, and a lot of that is just prep, you know, and we would tear the car down to the chassis every weekend and pull all the wires loose, look at every single thing, put it all the way back together, you know, and kind of nothing ever went down the track without it ever being inspected, whether it was a new part or not. You would tear it all the way apart and put it all the way back together and say, yep, everything was good. And then all it is is that peace of mind to know that those parts are good. You know? Yeah, if you're – that was a, an alcohol funny car? Yeah. So you're running 220 miles an hour plus? Yeah, 260 to 270 normally. You yeah. Know, One of the things five, I always tell five. people is that, you know, rock crawling compared to racing, when things go bad, 
they go yeah. bad in a much smaller way. Like you break a link bolt, you broke yeah. the bolt, you know, we can yeah. get you off yeah, course, yeah. fix the bolt yeah. or fix the link or the mount or whatever happened to go. And you don't tear yeah. everything else up. You get into racing, you know, you, you break a link bo- bolt and the next thing you know, you've destroyed a shock and, you know, maybe the corner of the car, but it, Two hundred and sixty yeah. miles an hour, or something breaks. Um, yeah, yeah, it's well, carnage. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that's kind of like a, it's a it's a really good practice for like prepping cars because, like the way I prep cars even to today, it's like you should start at the front end and tear it all the way apart, and then look at every single thing and magnaflux every single moving part that has a stress part to it. And then if everything is good, when you put it in, you know the date that you put it in. And then at the end of this date life that this part has that you're going to make up, it's trash. Like you don't put it in the trailer as a spare. You put it in the garbage and you start over because the second you pull it off the shelf, you know, it's got, say, it's only got the hammers on it, man. That's what a lot of people say. It's only been only got, you know, 80 miles at the hammers. Well, that, that tells you it has been beat like crazy. You know, it's not a, it's not a, oh, okay, I only went to, you know, this trail ride and we didn't do anything. Well, I, I start at the front end and move to the back end. And if you can find somebody that will actually prep a car like that, you don't have failures as often. Yes, you have failures, but like they're, they're either overlooked or they were looked at and decided they were good instead of something catching you completely off guard. Right. And it's amazing how small of an item can ruin somebody's race, you know, especially oh, yeah. like KOH. Oh, dude. 100%. I mean, 100%. A $3 part can ruin a a $50,000 effort. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. That's what kind of drives me crazy about a lot of the racing stuff is like there is absolutely nothing wrong with being a participant. But don't tie up a lot of people's effort if you just want to be a participant and not actually try to give it everything you got. You know what I mean? Like, it's one thing if you and your buddy want to go to the hammers and race it or try to do a series, but don't involve people that also strive to be the best or want to be the best and put in all the effort to do it only for somebody to go, ah, it's not a big deal. We called it or we're going to fix it down the road, you know, like... That's my part of it. Like, I suck as a spectator, and I, I don't, I don't like people that quit. Right. <laughs> you know, like if it's there, you can fix it. Now you might have to do some low down, dirty stuff to make it work, but you have to know how to do that. So. Yep. So let's go through the the phases of what you've done. Okay. Um, from like the first days at Blue Torch to yeah. what you're doing now with each one of the not year by year but I know you've 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 had your hands in racing and yeah. fabrication for a long time and right. a lot of different levels and and stuff so so give give all of us a, an idea of the things that you have done Well I guess the beginning would say like uh the very beginning of Blue Torch was a lot of trail rigs that we built, you know, cord elliptical suspension, four-link with cord elliptical, and then um, 
when Blue Torch became a real business, the parts design and building some of that stuff was everybody that worked there basically had a hand in that. And then uh, we would still do a lot of trail trail rigs or taking a Jeep or an LJ and building it to one tons. And, you know, the object was to build the, the, like say you brought in a Jeep to build, we would build it, but at the same time we would build a parts list that would be sold, you know, off the website or whatnot. And that's kind of what Blue Torch was, was we were, we were always building something to make parts for the next guy or the website or whatnot. But then we got into uh, when Bender came to work there, you know, Rob Park, he came and when he came to Blue Torch, he brought uh, the Webster's uh, like rock crawling style uh, stuff to the shop and as an idea or possibility of building them a car. So we built one car for her, uh, for Becca to drive, and that got us into the rock crawling world, which, you know, you just kind of opened up avenues of new people, and we got in with the Websters, and then we met Nicole Johnson, and then that kind of planted a seed to where, you know, accelerate that down a little bit, you get to King of the Hammers, and now Nicole's driving a Blue Torch car, you know, it just kind of opens your doors to where you're doing other things, but um, the whole... Red Bull Rock, I think it was the Rocker, the gray one we built, and we loaded it up and took it to Boyd, Texas, and did one of your events. Right. And, uh, the Concrete Bowl. Some, man, that was pretty pretty eye-opening for a lot of us that never got to see, like, the real side of wheeling. This is back when you had, like, uh, you get the DVDs off of um, – hauling or crawling videos and stuff like that. And it was like, man, these guys are crazy. They're like the Pirates of uh, the Rubicon videos. And you're just like, man, these, are, these guys are crazy. But that was like the next closest thing that you could see that, like in real life, it was very eye-opening that you could drive a vehicle in these certain situations. And, you know, you're shooting guys out of that bowl that's basically straight up and, you know, pretty eye-opening. But... I think we ended up popping a motor at that race and we found a junkyard motor. And then I think you might even hooked us up with a barn to use at some farmer's place. And we went there and swapped a motor out and came back to race the next day or do the course the next day. You know, it's like a whole lot of stuff goes on in the background of these things that not too many people know about. It is (laughs) so true. (laughs) Like, like, how did this happen, you know? Like, well, these guys worked till this morning to get it together. <laughs> and that's one of the things that's always driven me nuts about, you know, trying to get television for rock crawling. You know, yeah. everybody goes, oh, live coverage, live coverage, so you can see the guy run on the course. Okay, that's cool. If you're right. if you're another rock crawler competitor yeah. that, yeah. you know, can't make that event because you're on the other side of the country or whatever, but – trying to get the television producers to know that it's more than just scores and results, but the drama that goes on, you know, the week leading into an event, um, the event itself. I mean, there's so much happening that has nothing to do with what's on course, except trying to get there. Yep. A hundred percent, man. That's, 
<clears throat> that would be its own TV show, and then the extra would be the actual event. Right. You know? Well, and that's what we tried to produce, and then Harvey Weinstein gets busted for that, you know, at the beginning of that Me Too movement stuff, and the company we thought we were going to get that that could really put it together and had the same mind as us, um, it all dissolved. But And then since then, I haven't been able to, to get that, that kind of group together again. So no TV, you know, because I wasn't willing to sell out and be part of the uh, – the fakeality stuff, you know, right. I, I, right. I didn't want to do that. I, I don't need ice road truckers and, and no. American chopper on the rocks. You know, it doesn't make any sense. No. And I don't think it would do any justice because the people that are actually involved in it would see the holes in your, in your show and know that it's not real. Right. You know? So, so then <laughs> after blue torch and the rock crawling. Yeah. So we came back to, uh, from drag racing, I came back to Blue Torch and did the uh, two-seat car that we built that Nicole drove, and um, she drove it at the Hammers, and then I ended up wrecking that car pre-running, or not pre-running, but uh, like shaking the car down and trying to get the suspension somewhat right and being completely green to everything, and taking a lot of input from uh, Troy Johnson at the fab school on how to drive one of these cars correctly instead of just, you know, figuring it out. And I was driving the car at what a pace that I was very comfortable at driving at. And Frank uh, was riding with me and Nicole's husband. And we got kind of a, a bad bounce out of this little washout and it kind of passed the back end past the front end. And we didn't wad the car up by any means, but it, it took a tumble and needed an upper link and messed some panels up and stuff. But, uh, we loaded up, went to the fab school and they, uh, cut some tubes out, fixed some things. Cause it had a big rolled roof on it. And then, the the steering was kind of over sped for what was comfortable. Like the input was too touchy and, um, Jeff Howe ended up fixing all that for us and getting it to where you could drive it right. And uh, when we got back home, it was, we cut it all apart and put a flat roof on it and then put the uh, steering box under, under the driver's seat to make it have like a class eight style swing set steering. So it had a gearbox and a Ram assist. And that was like the best thing you have ever driven coming from a Ram at that time or double the Ram. And then we did the Vegas Torino, I think it was 09. So we built that car in 08 for Nicole to drive. I think it was 08. And then 09, we did Vegas Torino. And then Rob Mack drove the car with Larry McRae at the Hammers. And um, what else? I think they, they popped the motor, that King of the Hammers, and um, got it back home and put a different engine together for it. And, change the transmission i'm gonna say it had a 700 r4 back in it back then and we went to a turbo 400 and because you have like that rock crawler mentality where you gotta have stupid low crawling but at that time you didn't because of the the hammers wasn't really technical rock crawling it was more of a you kind of have to have that bump every now and then like we had to hit it with some speed you know and right push it through 
yeah, super steep first gear and low five to one transfer case is dumb, you know. But now you, you know, I mean, like now you've got guys running running the hammers with a one five case. It's like the times have changed, you know. But, right. <laughs> but so. you also got guys doing one hundred and thirty in the lake on across the lake bed. Yep. Yeah, like very effortlessly. Yes. That's about what Tom and I run. I think it's one thirty four was our this past year, and that's like nothing that's when you eat and drink <laughs> it's as crazy as it is that's insane yeah so then well, so then uh were you building transmissions as well or did you have no i was built? using um uh hughes performance was doing the transmissions okay you know because kind of shannon campbell and nick campbell kind of set the bar on a bunch of that stuff where they had you know, these are the companies that we're using. And, you know, Turnkey did a bunch of engine work for us. And then um, they were using Hughes, which is basically a local company to those guys. And their stuff seemed to work. So everybody was kind of doing that. And we got on that program for a while. And then, you know, we started having engine issues, I would say. And then started doing them ourselves, you know. And that was when... You start bringing everything in house to do that type of stuff. Like when uh, uh, Peter and I raced the uh, single seat car and the JK at, at near the end of Blue Torch, it was all built engines from the shop instead of running something that somebody else built and said was good, you know, and didn't have any issues really with any of that. And it took a little while, a few years to figure out like driveline combinations that work that aren't picking on certain parts or pieces, or if they are, you know what you can get lifetime out of this part and you change it before it fails. Right. But, okay. And so you, uh, you outsourced transmission work, but you, you started doing the engine work yourself. Right. Which is what kind of what my dad did as when I was a kid, my dad grew up, I, I grew up watching my dad build engines and, tuning carburetors and stuff like that at the drag strip. So like the nuts and bolts side of the engine is not real intimidating once you understand what you're trying to accomplish, you know, what the application of this engine is to do, then it's not that hard to figure out. But um, I think a lot of the early stages of the crate motor game was this motor works great for this, but it doesn't work great for that. But feel free to try it. You know, and, you know, you kind of figure out like the mileage that you can get out of an engine in the environment that we run in, you know, like to get a thousand or 1500 miles out of an engine is doing something. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, like as crazy as that number is, if you can get a 1500 miles out of an actual race engine, you're doing it. And like normally filtration is not good enough to do that. Right. On both ends, on air and lubrication. 100%. Yeah. I mean, just look at the environment that you run this thing in. Like, you're basically treating it like a rental car with full coverage insurance every time you crank it up. (laughs) I I don't think – there's a few areas that I would never buy a rental car from. And that's anywhere where there was off-road racing or rock crawling events. Uh, or drag races. Drag races, that, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so you fly into one of those towns where any of that's going on, you just kind of go, okay, you know, I'll rent it, but uh, I'll never yeah. buy from that rental car company. Exactly. <laughs> Even if it's a uh, like an eight-passenger van or something, no way. Exactly. Because you know it was filled with more than that, and uh, yeah. everybody beat on it. <laughs> yep. So then yep. Uh, the engine building, that uh, – what kind of work did you do at – at trail gear. So at trail gear, I just ran his race program. It was, uh, just trying to get his new car, which was that IFS car that, uh, Brian Kirby built. And, uh, just trying to get it to where it's competitive. Like the year before I came out there, um, that's when he had his accident at the hammers and got all banged up and all that kind of good stuff. But, um, Fixing a lot of the little stuff that needed to be fixed on that car just from, like, the, like, package, more or less, like, the combination of the motor, the transmission, and the converter, and the gear ratio was a little off, and then um, just Matt kind of gave me free reign to, to put something together that would work, and, you know, I went back to what I know with what we were running at the Blue Torch stuff and started there, and, you know, I think we won four or five races that year with him driving them. And, uh, we went to the hammers and I think we went to the hammers like five or six times. Like we would test, uh, tune shocks with, uh, King, like on Thursday or something like that in Barstow. And, uh, we'd go to the hammers and spend the weekend at the hammers, just running like the prior year's lap and just putting miles on the car. And then <clears throat> came, came race week we get to the hammers like on thursday and they give us the race course on friday and we're out pre-running and the car catches on fire and uh about lap like mile 20 something of the first lap and right before you got to the big big desert section and the car is basically engulfed in flames from behind and matt's telling me that the car is losing power and like I had all the gauges on my side of the car and I was like, everything on my end looks like it's good. And then it just died. And when it died, it, you know, came to a slow stop at like 90 miles an hour and we were engulfed in flames and it was pretty wild to get out of that situation and get the fire put out. Once it, like it burned the whole back of the car off, but once it got, uh, through the, um, cooler hoses it it was enough water above the motor on that in that radiator to kind of get it down to where the the dirt and the sand you're throwing on it was able to kind of contain it but it's kind of scary for a minute and then we got it put out and um we got towed back to camp and matt was like well you know kind of that sucks and i guess we'll just load it up and go to the house and I was kind of more like, no, that ain't, that ain't how we're going to do this. And I called uh, a buddy of mine, a turnkey, and I said, like, man, I need all these parts. Do you have them? And he's like, yep. I'm like, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to come down there. It's bad. And we get down there, and we'd tear the back of the car apart and get the motor out of it because it melted everything on it and went to repairing everything and got it all put back together. And then – uh showed back up at the hammers like three days later, two days later. And I think we qualified seventh that year with no pre-run time on the car because of all the issues that we had. And, um, 
finished 10th that year, but we didn't have a single gauge in the car that you didn't need. And, um, Matt didn't have any real input in on how it was set up. It was just drive it, which is pretty cool because like I met a lot of people through the whole trail gear situation that were big comp crawler guys, like, you know, Justin Hall and all those kind of guys like Aaron Sykes, stuff like that. But they were helping with pit stuff and Matt wanted to be the guy in the pit. You know, when you roll into pit, like the driver wants to make sure everything is great. And I was very clear, like, this dude doesn't need to know anything. You just need to smile and say everything looks great. And if the, the tire's hanging off of it, fix it, but smile while you're doing it so he doesn't freak out because <laughs> I've got to deal with this guy for the next eight hours. And we we we, we nerfed um, oh, Chicky Barton in the desert, and uh, it broke the side of the winch off. Like, like at the last four feet of us coming in to, to nerf Chicky at, like, 50 or 60 miles an hour, he kind of went to the right and it took the motor side of the winch off. So like the gearbox side of the winch off and we're, we're hauling mail through the desert, you know, and next thing you know, there's like six or eight foot of winch rope with the shackle just banging off the hood. I'm like, Oh my God, you got to roll your winch in. So he like hits the winch and you can kind of hear it in the radio. Like in your earpiece, pick up the, the winch is, is moving. I'm like, okay, that's probably good. You know? And, another five minutes go by now there's like 15 foot hanging out and i'm like i think you went the wrong way on the winch so he's just holding the button down the other way i'm like okay that's got to be good and uh we radio into i radio into pit and you know now there's 20 feet out and it's over the top of the car and i'm like man we get into pit just figure out what's wrong with this winch there's no like it's not reeling in so the guy in pit's like okay man so we pull into pit, main camp or main pit at the hammers, and I unplug my headset, my helmet from the car, so Matt can't hear me and the guy talking. And the guy comes over and he's like, "Man, your winch is is, is no good." And I'm like, "Okay, what's wrong with it?" He goes, "It's broken half." And I'm like, "Wrap that, you know, wrap it up and let's let's go with it." And he's like, "Okay." So he's out front wrapping it up, and Matt put my helmet back in, and Matt was like, "What did he say? What did he say?" And I said, "Man, he said it's everything looks good and we're good to go." So we get leave pit, you know, and I love Matt to death, but like he would have freaked out if he knew it was broke then. Like we would have gone back out and we go out and we get to the top of wrecking ball and the car just won't do the climb. And he's like, let's just winch it. I'm like, no, we're not going to winch it. You're going to back up, move over like two feet to the right. And it should one shot around the top rock, you know, pivot rock at the top. And he's like, okay. And he's like, if it don't go, we're going to winch. Man, it goes. I'm like, thank God it made it. (laughs) And we get we get all the way through, we come up chocolate thunder and we kind of put the car on the door and Matt's like, let's winch it. Let's just not, not risk it. I'm like, that ain't an option. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, that ain't an option. And the next thing you know, we get pushed over back on the tires. And, uh, it was like Aaron Sykes and those guys pushed us back over and, uh, we get to going and, the course worker guy was like, you're good to go. You know, kept the traffic rolling and we finished the race. And I was like, man, that, that winch got broke like mile nine. And that's why we couldn't winch. And he's like, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> like, <laughs> because you would have quit, you know? And the first race I raced with him, man, we had, uh, went to that, um, oh man, there's somewhere in New Mexico, um, the Cinco de Baja race they did. Right. And, 
you know, we got the pole because of the random draw or whatever, and we started losing oil pressure like the fifth lap. Well, like the way that car was set up, like if my hand was on my left leg, like if I bent my knees, my hand was on my left hand was on my left knee, I could cover up the oil pressure gauge. So as the whole time it's blinking, I could just cover it up. And Matt would be like every 40 seconds, what's the gauges look like? What's the gauges look like? And I, man, it looked great. You know, the whole time I'm not even looking because I know what's behind me is dying. A quick, a quick death to just... And every time he'd put it in third gear, I'd knock it back to second. Like, keep the RPMs up, man. Like, don't lug this thing. And he's like, oh, okay. And then we get through the finish line. We win the race. And when he when he comes through the finish line, he gets off the gas. It it It's done. The motor locks up. It's over with. And he's like, what happened? I said, man, we lost oil pressure like 40 miles ago. You've been getting by with about four to five pounds of oil pressure. And he's <laughs> like, why didn't you say anything? I said, man, that's a long walk. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about your luck, but we did just win the race. Isn't that what we came to do? You know, it's only got to run today. Like, it doesn't matter if it doesn't run tomorrow. You know, right. But that's the style of racing I try to do where you leave every single thing on the table instead of like, man, if I'd have just, you know, if we'd have just kept going, we'd have probably finished instead of like, you got to try and you kind of got to know what you can get away with, with parts and pieces wise, but. And then you got to be quick on your, you know, thought process of what can you omit out of a car and not. Right. So, so then, after trail gear. Yep. What your uh, what was you you went back to Blue Torch. Yeah, I came back to Blue Torch, and then um, you know brought a bunch of racing stuff from the trail gear stuff because we did all the IFS car stuff. I raced the F toy at. Uh, Prairie City at Goodby's deal with the NorCal series, and then um, did some cone stuff with you guys at like Donner, and then uh, one in Arizona. I can't remember that one, but um, you know, just some more experience type stuff. And then came back to Blue Torch and was just doing the parts side of stuff and helping in the shop where needed. And Peter and Jason wanted to do some real racing, so we start putting the car together to do the real racing and we go to the hammers and uh peter and jason and myself are going to split driving duties with the single seat car and i get up i winch up the right side of back door and um i end up breaking a lower link on the second step up you know six minutes into the race and backed up and Goodby's looking at me like the drive shaft just come flying out of this thing. And so I back up and uh, get all the way over to the right of the second wall. So I'm kind of out of the way. And uh, I basically run back to main pit with this link that I need to have welded together or, you know, clamped together or something to get me going. And uh, when I get back to camp, like Dave's trailer is parked kind of near ours, and there happens to be an aluminum link that's got inch and quarter himes in it that looks like it'll work. So we confiscate that basically, and I go back <laughs> to the car, and it's like six, eight inches too long for where it needed to go in the tab. So I just said, screw it. I just stuck it in the chassis, and I ratchet strapped the chassis to the link, like the, the axle to the chassis wedged in there to where it can't come out. You know what I mean? Like if it comes out, 
you got other problems anyways. And <laughs> I, I did that and ended up getting out. But by that time, it was like kind of all for naught. You know, I ended up, Jason and those guys ended up calling the race. But, you know, I drove it back to camp and then got home with it and fixed it correctly. And uh, we built that JK, which was the 4500 class, which was the spare drive line to the single seat car in it. So it was a big cube LS motor, turbo 400, the spare Atlas. And it was pretty stout for what it was. And, uh, we raced it. I raced it at the hammers. Peter drove it for 4,500 class. And then I raced it in 4,400 on race day, but Peter drove the single seat car. And it was basically nothing more than a parts wagon for the single seat car. And, um, and we had a lot of fun with that. John Gabriel uh, co-rode with Peter for the 4500 race, and then I co-rode, or uh, he co-rode with me for the 4400 race in that same car. Nice. So, yeah, it was a good time. Just a lot of work to transfer from. They changed it over from a 37 to a 39, and then liners and all that kind of good stuff. Like, I commend the guys at BFG for swapping tires Thursday night to 40s. For the next day, <laughs> but <laughs> didn't have a whole new set with uh, liners and rims, huh? No, you know I wasn't that big time, so I couldn't. I didn't have that many wheels and tires ready to go, so I just had to work with what I had. So, so you brought the you brought the single seat out to Alabama, not Alabama. Excuse me, it was uh, not Georgia. Oh yeah, Durham Town. Durham Town. Yeah, I was like the nastiest I've ever been in my life. In that was a, that was one muddy race. <laughs> Man, I tell you what. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I I was telling the guy that was racing with me or helping me was uh, James Vest. I said, "Man, I really, really, really don't want to qualify. Like, I will take a rear start just so I don't have to get in this car." Because, like, once I get in it, I'm not going to want to get out because you're going to be nasty. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, okay, man, whatever you want to do. And then I think everybody else in the, that was one the race was like, no, just let him go first and we'll go behind or whatever that situation worked out to be. But, yeah, that was a bad day. I mean, big cars don't don't work that well in the woods race of a uh, motocross track in, in the grand scheme of things. Right, sliding in yeah. the sliding in and off the road, and man, <laughs> and then the the owner showed up the next day. Oh, that guy! I've never raced there that that guy didn't have, you know, a cussing match with somebody. <laughs> and it's like, dude, come on, man! You you have to be a special kind of dumb to not realize that when you turn something loose out here with six, seven hundred horsepower on your motocross track that it's going to annihilate it for a few days. You're going to need to do some dress-up work. Right, yeah. and it and his tractor was the thing that caused the most problems, his tractor operator. <laughs> yeah. Because it was stuck out there. <laughs> yeah. It, it was fun, though. I mean, I, I, I missed the days of racing in your series just because it was so much more laid back, and at times it was laid back. Obviously, there's another story in there for that, but it, it was a whole lot more laid back, not as stressful. You don't need 50 people to do the race and you're not going to tear up that much stuff. Right. In theory. But 
Well, and you know, our whole thing with Dirt Riot was to to expose people that into the racing, the four wheel drive right. endurance racing, that wouldn't get a chance otherwise. Right. You know, and I think we did a good job at that. I remember one time we had like eighteen racers out of twenty four, twenty five finishers that had all got their start with us one year at KOH. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, and that, that says something, you know. Well, I thought it was pretty cool was back when you had to do pretty good in your series to get a a, a chance to race the Hammers. You know, yes. I ended up getting one. I had to go to Texas to, to like, seal the deal on getting the qualifying spot for the Hammers. But it, it meant something back then. You know what I mean? Like, you weren't just on the list because of who you were. You had to earn it. Yep. Which, which to me was a pretty good deal, you know. Right. And that was, those were some fun times. We really enjoyed the racing aspect. Uh, yeah. just too many cars decided not to keep coming back. You know, they'd go race, yeah. they'd get into ultra four race. They'd, you know, they'd, uh, yep. refinance their house two or three times. And, uh, yeah. then they would uh, sell their race cars and, and never go racing again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that's, you know, yeah. that's racing. Yeah, the good part about the Dirt Riot series that you had over here on this side of the country was the the races, like the furthest one was Durhamtown, really. I mean, you raced at Durhamtown, and you raced in our backyard here in Birmingham, and that was perfect, you know? Like, didn't have to go anywhere. Could go home at night. Yeah, Grey Rock was always fun. Yeah. Heck yeah, it was. At the, racing that Jeep out there was kind of a... I felt like I was driving a D8 bulldozer through the woods, but... <laughs> You know, something that's 90 inches wide or 92 inches wide. That's, I don't know how I qualified on the pole and didn't, you know, rip a corner off the car. But, <laughs> you know, at that, that year I raced uh, your deal with, uh, I think it was Bill Baird was on the pole and I was right behind him in like the second lap or something like that. Bill's all spun out in the woods and he is trying his dangest to get this thing to go. And I pull up on him and he's just like looking at me like, Oh no. And there was nowhere to go. And his car was wedged in between two trees and he was facing traffic. And one whole corner of the car was missing. Like the right, like the right rear axle, left rear axle with the two wheel and all was gone. And I ended up driving over the front of his car to go by. But when I came back around the next lap, come back up to the start-finish line where his truck and trailer was, he was gone. It's like, man, that dude didn't stick around for nothing. Well, once we got him out, no, he didn't. <laughs> like, holy crap, man, he's gone, you know? It was it was difficult to get him out of that spot. <laughs> oh, I can imagine, because, like, running up on him, man, it was, it was a bad spot to be in anyways, you know? But that's like we would go to Texas and we race out there, another Bill Baird story. He gets upside down in this mud hole and i come around and i'm like oh god like this is bad like the roof of this car is in the mud like under the mud and four tires sticking up in the air and i'm radioing into peter like hey dude i think bill baird's car is he's got to be out of the car but like i think he's out of the race 100 percent, you know and i get the cruising like going down the road next thing you know there's this dude that's half covered in mud like his his legs aren't muddy but the whole top of his fire suit and everything is muddy like he just took a dunk in the mud and got all the way back to main camp and you know bill bear was always a good 
sportsmanship guy like cut up and talk to you about what he did but it's like man that had to be scary as all get out you know single seat car upside down on the driver's side like you can't get out like how did you get out of this thing you know yeah he did the only thing was he lost his helmet um because remember i told everybody if you're if your car's upside down and you're you're uh away from the vehicle you've gotten out and you're walking back leave your helmet so on the car so that everybody knew you were okay yeah and that's when um daryl gray pulled up didn't see the helmet pulled over unbelted and jumped in and searched the car for bill to see if bill was out of the car (laughs) then got back in his car and that was that was probably some of the nastiest smelling mud Ever. Dude, it was like straight sulfur mud, man. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good so, stuff, man. <laughs> so tell us what you're doing now. So now I had a, <clears throat> when I let my blue torch fizzled or whatever, um, I got a building, you know, 5,000 square foot building and just been doing the normal parts deal, like selling parts and brackets and tabs and stuff like that, that I've done forever. And, um, the end of 21, like near the end of 21, I ended up selling that business and, um, just started doing the Schofield performance deal where, uh, bought a chassis dyno. I do a bunch of engine work, uh, uh, a lot of gear work and, you know, engine tuning, fuel, fuel injection stuff and, uh, putting combinations together for people that race an ultra four that normally would never, you know, have the ability to do it from the East Coast to have a, a good combination that works to start out or have somebody on the West Coast that sends you an engine and you build them and tune them and ship them out. You know, and that's kind of what I enjoy doing is playing with the engine and doing the tuning. And I prep a few Ultra 4 cars and I do a lot of the tuning and stuff like that for a lot of guys in the Ultra 4 world that, you know, that will you don't have to have every car here or run a sticker on everybody's car to get by. So I mean, right. that's kind of doing it over here in the dark type of situation where you tune a lot of people's stuff or you build a lot of people's engines and do a lot of gear work for people, but you're involved in so many different cars and classes that, you know, I, I can't keep up with who's doing what at what race really. And um, then you're still, are you still running with Tom Ways? Is he still running? Yeah, so we ran, um, so obviously my accident in 21, we had, uh, I basically had a year of not being able to do anything and, um, pretty well healed up from that a hundred percent. I would say on about everything, my back's got some issues, but it's not the end of the world, but, um, was able to get back in the car last year and, uh, which was great. You know, it's kind of a, weird deal like going back to the hammers and and excuse me uh seeing everybody that it either you know called checked in on me or took care of my wife or helped my wife with logistics or what you need to do how you need to handle this or hey man we're just sending you dinner those kind of things it was it was great to be able to, to like shake those people's hands and tell them thank you and stuff like that but like the car sitting there it's like okay same car same deal and, you know, like, okay, like, let's go pre-running. And we get in the car, and it's like, it's like nothing ever happened. And, you know, 
in my opinion, like getting back on that horse is, is like the best thing you can do. Like a lot of people, man, that, that race ultra four were like, you need to just hang it up, dude. Like that, that hit too close to home. And it's like, man, like you can't quit. You know what I mean? Like you can't quit like that. Like you would rather quit by doing something good, coming back from that and doing something good and saying, Hey, you know what? I'm done with the race side of it. I'll stick to doing something on the sidelines type of situation. But that drive of wanting to do it has always been there. And my wife is, you know, kind of the baddest chick I know and like overly supportive of, no, this is what we do. Like, this is how we eat. This is what we do. And this is, this is all we know how to do. So right, wrong or indifferent, we're going to race. And this is what we do. And a lot of her friends and man have been kind of like, well, that's kind of weird. You're going to let him do that again. She's like, what do you mean? Let him do that. Like, this is what he does. <laughs> you know, my awesome. life doesn't work, you know? And you know, what's kind of crazy is like, she's never really been like in the, the not say limelight, but she doesn't know who's who in all of this. And to be thrown to the wolves last year it's or year and a half ago, it's kind of, kind of crazy that, all these people that will even listen to your podcast or why is podcast we race against stuff like that. You know, you never know where you stand with certain people or people in general until something bad happens. And to be, to be the guy that received all the benefits and like the people helping out, it, it's overwhelming, man. Like I'm not one to ask for help. Like <laughs> I just figure it out type of situation, but you got people that are like, quit being a dumbass and just take the help. And you're like, okay, you're like I get it. You know, like I don't know how to accept it. I guess you'd say in the in the like the the most proper way. So it's like, you know, hey, we're sending you guys dinner. It's like, okay, and they're like, what do you guys want? It's like, man, I don't know, just something easy. It's like, no, we're not sending you something easy. We're going to send you something that's going to be good. It's like, man, you're talking to the wrong guy. Like. <laughs> we, you know, sandwiches. Like I'm not, I'm not asking for that, you know. And <laughs> like business wise, like people that I had in the shop, like vehicles I had in my shop, like they were overly understanding of the situation. But at the same time, they weren't like pulling out, like you know, people that were that I was helping on their cars or whatever, or doing the tuning and stuff like that. Like they weren't like all of a sudden bailing, you know. And it was like the people that are loyal to you when you're down are pretty pretty solid individuals in my opinion you know and it's like took me a while to get back up you know to the shop but once my wife dropped me off at the shop it was it was good because i was still in a walker and stuff like that but getting all that you know worked out to where i can get back some stamina again in my legs and my back it was once i got to that point it was like i got a goal and the goal is to get back in in february and you know, if Tom or Dylan or Tony of Icon would say, yeah, or not, then that was the deal. Like, like I'm going to show up and you're going to have to tell me no <clears throat> instead of like, well, let's put this other guy in, you know, which he, he had another opportunity, a guy to race with him, but like he had other opportunities for people to race with him. But Tom was like, no, if he's ready, he's in, he's getting back in. And it's like, you know, like that's pretty legit in my opinion. So getting back in the car at 21 or 22 was, was great. And I think qualified like mid 20 or something like that. And we ended up finishing 10th, ninth or 10th, something like that. And 
I did the first lap and then ran, uh, I guess it'd be remote pit two or something like that. And, you know, as an option, if you needed it, I'd get back in. But I told my wife I'd call her in like four hours after the race started because I'd be getting out. And then uh, we we come back in down uh, resolution and bypass around back door. And Tom's like, man, I don't think I'm ready for you to get out. I'm like, Tom, I'm not married to you, buddy. And he's like, I understand. <laughs> I was like, After last year, dude, I better just uh, get out and make a phone call, and I'll be ready to go when you're ready. And he's like, sounds good. you know. And then come through the short course and radio in to the, the guy, Jake, that ended up running the second, third lap with Tom. I was like, hey, man, I'm getting out, so get ready. And we came in, and we got fuel and some back tires, and that guy hopped in and checked out. Awesome. So, and yeah. uh what's what's happening uh in twenty three? Um I would say twenty three would be much like twenty two, hopefully. Um Good. Tom and I talked a little bit and uh, if everything works out on my end it will just be I would say in the car the whole time. Um as long as my back will stay together, I'll I'll do the whole thing. Um but that's the plan, you know, still doing some drag racing stuff with uh, Fletcher's car, but uh, he's pretty good. Like, I, I keep all his stuff in my shop, so as long as everything's good with it and uh, we're not doing any preseason testing or nothing like that, then the hammers will work out. Because the hammers has always worked out kind of funky with uh, drag racing because the first, race, first real race of the season is the same weekend of the hammers 90% of the time, and is that you would end up is that winter nas- what they call winter nationals? Yeah, Pomona? you would end up. Yeah, you would test in Phoenix or Vegas, and you might be there a week or two early and uh, you know service a car, assemble a car, and then go preseason testing and try different combos, and then tear it all apart, prep it again to go to the first race of the year. So the hammers was always like, if you were to do it, you would show up to do the day of, and I don't think that very justifies getting into the car. You know, right? Like Tom stuff. Like you're there, like a week and a half, two weeks early, and you you get to you get to pull all the like pull all the panels off the car. You pull the third members out. You you make sure every single thing is legit, and then you put it back together and you go race it. So when it does have an issue, Tom's not like Tom is the most like we'll figure some stuff out kind of guy in the race car, but you're not, you're not wanting that. You know what I mean? Like you're wanting him to just solely drive, like just shut up, eat your food and drink your drink. And I'll handle that. And Tom and I have that kind of relationship where he's like, okay, okay. And he'll just sit there and do his deal while I'm working on what I'm doing. Or he can go, you know, talk to the people that powers it be of whatever he's wanting to do for sponsorships or, you know, whatnot. And, when he comes back, the car is ready to go. And the, the guys that Tom has assembled to work on his race car are pretty legit people. And if they say this is what it is, and that's what it is, there's no, well, this weekend it's this guy pulling this tire off or this guy doing this pit spot. You know, it's like the same people all the time. And you, you get into that routine of, you know, like, hey, this guy does this, and, you know, Colt does this, and Jan does this, and this is how we're doing it. And, you know who to talk to, who's ahead at what pit, and and they can kind of tell when you talk to them on the radio what is severe and what's not severe, and 
you can put it in terms that they can understand it and you know what you're talking to, you know, like they know what you're talking about by the way you're talking to them. So right, it, it works out really well. So do you so, have to uh, do with Tom like you did with, uh, with Matt and, you know, kind of hide maybe what's, what's happening behind you or do you just, um, or with him, Tom's more uh, proactive. I would say Tom, Tom is, is, is not, easy to BS, you know, where Messer running 100 miles an hour in the whoops or 110 in the whoops is kind of on the front of the seat. You know, Tom is going to be like one hand on top of the steering wheel and the other one trying to figure out how to open this pack of, you know, gummies. And it's like, (laughs) what what are you doing? You know, where, you know, there's certain spots in the race where Tom's like, take the wheel, I'm going to drink and I'm going to eat, you know, and okay, we're running 80 miles an hour. I'm steering and navigating while he's eating and drinking. And then when he's done, you know, he'll burp in your freaking ear set like he has no house training, and then you go on about your business, <laughs> you know? But, like, that's just that's just how it is, man. Like, I totally yeah. see Tom as that. I've known him a long time. Uh, I, I'd say oh. we're, we're friends, but we're not, you know, super tight or close or anything. But, you right. know, we've known each other for a long time. You know, he rock crawled uh-huh. with us and with a trail rig. And all that right. kind of stuff, but he, uh, yeah, definitely, yeah, solid individual, man. Like if it went down, if something bad went down, that's the dude you want on your side, right? Absolutely. You know I mean? Like whether it's you know killing something in your house with a hatchet or chasing bears, <laughs> exactly, or trying to get you out of the desert after you get all busted up. So right. Yeah. So what else you got going? Um, the uh, life good down there in in Alabama right now. Yeah, so uh, basically, my kids, my little boy is kind of picking up some uh, tuning input for me on the chassis dyno side of things, and you know he's been able to tune a few cars remotely, and uh, I let him operate the dyno, like the vehicle on the dyno, whether it's a off-road car or a pickup truck or something that we're tuning, but he'll, he'll, he's learning the ropes of how to do that kind of stuff to where hopefully one day I can kind of take a step back and let him run with it. And, um, he's 11 now. He's been tuning cars for about a year and a half, two years. And, um, he gets it, you know what I mean? He understands it, which is amazing. And he kind of shows interest in coming to the shop every day that he can. And, whether it's to sweep up or just to hang out and hear the other guys talking that, you know, the shop talk of what we do and why we do what we do and how you do certain things. And he understands it. And then I've got my little girl Lexington that is uh, seven and she's into dance and cheerleading and wants to play softball, wants to do every single thing, but she comes to the shop and, you know, she sweeps up, runs the dust mop and kind of just bosses people around like, that's what she's supposed to do. And, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, like I, my goal as a father is like, I want my kids to be experienced in all these things that are considered extreme. So like drag racing, off-road racing, you know, being around things that are normally not a normal thing for somebody to be like, Oh, my girlfriend's dad does this, you know, or my girlfriend knows what this is based on this or, you know, that type of situation where you're not like shell shocked that, Oh my God, that's an off-road race car. And Oh, that's, that's so-and-so like 
I don't get like people to say like, oh, that's so and so. Like we should get his autograph. Like that's the dumbest thing you can get is an autograph. Like <laughs> you need to be on the same level as that person, and then they'll recognize you just like you recognize them. And don't like cater to certain people. Like make them respect you instead of just all like walking up front and giving them you know the world. Like they need to earn it, and then when they earn it, they'll respect it. And they'll respect you for what you've had to do to get to where you're at. In kind of my situation, that's the way I look at it, you know. That's... There's a lot of people that are in this in this off-road industry that are either bought their way in or kind of just got lucky, I would say. If you want to call it luck, I, I'm a firm believer everything happens for a reason. And if if you didn't earn it, it doesn't last. Right. And, True. That's kind of where I'm at. And that's, that's some good advice. Um, you know, that what you're saying about, you know, guys needing to, to earn and how to earn it, you know, be real, step up, you know, and, uh, and experience it. You know, if you're, yeah, I, I see the, I've, I've been around enough different types of racing to know that there's people that can write the check show up and sit in the car and have no idea what's happening around them except driving it. And some of those guys are great drivers, but they better have somebody in the vehicle with them that can, can help them when, when shit goes sideways. A hundred percent. And a lot of races, man, have been come down to the person in the passenger seat. Like how creative can you get? with getting this car out of here or fixing this problem or what can we use off of the car to get this other thing figured out. And you have to do some very, very low down dirty work at times. And when you do it, you know that that fix is only temporary and then you fix it correctly where some of those guys, they'll do that kind of fix on a race. And then the next race they show up with the same stuff and you're like, and you wonder why you don't finish or you wonder why you're not placing or your car's always broke or you always got to work on it. You know, like I'm a firm believer. And if you do all the prep work at the shop, you really don't have a whole lot to do at the track. True. A lot of races are won and lost at the track or at the pit instead of at the track. Yep. Like working out of your shop or at your, like at the hammers, like if you yard your car part after qualifying to get ready for race day, that's like the best thing you could do. You know, forces then, you to prep. Exactly. And people that build cars that aren't very thought out of serviceability, like the best thing you could ever do is buy a car from somebody that also works on them and build them because they're, they're thought out to where you can actually get this part out without having to remove that part. You know, it's very serviceable. Like the forethought into building a chassis is there for the race day type changes. Right. Yeah. But, well, yeah. any recommendations for somebody that's uh, that's an enthusiast but always wanted to get into, say, you know, being on a team with KOH? How, how would how would you suggest somebody, you know, that wants to be involved besides being a spectator? I would say pick somebody that you think you want to work with and try to be a sponge, like you know, approach somebody with a with a way of being open to the way they do certain things. And you'll probably learn something while 
being a part of something, you know, whether you're working for a, a big name team or a very, very entry level team. Um, like to me, I think if you're, if you go into something like that as an open mind or you have a little bit of experience, cause a lot of the guys that help at the hammers, whether it's on, you know, Tom's team or anybody else's team per se, they, they all have some kind of a wheeling background. So like you want somebody that's, kind of been around rock crawling so they're not like when the car comes into pit and it's got two flat tires and you know stuff's going bad like they're not just like overwhelmed freaked out like you want somebody that's just like cool calm and collective and it's just like reaching for tools doing the job instead of being all into their fields at that time you know emotions kind of get people hurt in my opinion so the more you're just completely mellow in a pit spot like nobody yelling and cussing at somebody for not grabbing the right tool or the wrong zip tie or the wrong tape. Like the the reason you're having to yell is that guy's uneducated. So you never, you never showed him properly what he needs to do. Right. And I think, uh, being a sponge and having somebody teach you the ropes is kind of a, a big thing to, to do. And it, it transfers from boat racing to drag racing to off road racing or working in a shop, you know, like, if you see somebody sweeping up a pile of dirt, you should probably grab the dustpan. Like you don't grab the other broom, you don't grab the shop vac, you grab a dustpan. Like you kind of see where they're going with what they're working with, and then if you know that guy's taking a tire off and you don't see another one next to him, you probably should roll one over there. You know what I mean? Like just a little forethought in that side of it to where you're not uh, a hindrance, you're actually a help. Yeah, using some common sense. Yeah, I think if you can if you can keep cool, everything works out better. You know what I mean? Like when it's crazy and hectic and everybody's running around and screaming and yelling, nothing gets done correctly. True. Very true. You know what I mean? And it's like if, even if you wad a car up at the hammers, you don't have to be freaking out about it. Like kind of get your game plan, check the bearings and know what's going on and kind of go from there. So is there anything else that uh, you want to talk about that we haven't touched on? I don't know. You said something about a funny story you had. Well, that was the the one where the guy at Durhamtown. Oh, uh, that guy. Yeah, was oh, yelling and were, yelling and screaming, you and you were standing there, and I was just like, "Okay, uh, yes, okay, yes." And then, and then he drove off. Of, you know, but yeah, we looked at each other like the one uh, the protest I got at Durhamtown. Oh, I don't remember that one. Where I I nerfed the guy and uh, he brake checked me. I was on him for like four miles or something, and he brake checked me in the woods, and uh, I wrecked the back of his car, and he broke the coilover off of the right front of my car. So I was running on a bypass and a coilover that was just riding on the side panel, basically, and. Uh, I caught the guy again, like he rabbited me. I caught him again. And then next thing you know, James Vest, the guy that was helping me on a car, was like, hey, dude, I don't know what the hell you did, but these dudes are pissed. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, they're over at the trailer, like, they're ready to fight. I'm like, great. When I get done here in a little while, we can handle this. And I I come in, and you were just like, all right. He's like, James, I want to hear your story. I'm like, okay. So I kind of told you what the deal was. I was like, no, man, I caught this guy in the woods 
and you said, you have a camera? I said, yeah, I got one on the dash. And you're like, okay, cool. And then you and Josh pulled the camera card, and you looked at it, and then you kind of like watched the video, and I had the siren on a toggle switch, and it ran for, you know, a while. And then when I finally got to the guy, like the co-rider waved, and I backed off, and then it was like another mile or two. And then the guy finally just brake checked me, and I was, you know, foot off his bumper. And I went under his car, broke the deal. And then you looked at the guy that owned the car that I hit, and was like, "Hey, buddy, that's that's actually not that bad. You should you should be thankful. That's all you got wrong with your car." <laughs> and then the guy was pissed, man. And we go to Gray Rock, and I'm racing the JK. And you had the safety meet, like the drivers meeting, and it was directed at me and that guy. And you, you were like, for anybody that doesn't understand how this game works, is if you hear the siren and you don't move, it is fair game. And the, they were like, well, that's, you know, kind of BS, you're wrecking cars and this and that. And you're like, no, 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 there's people that are here to race and then there's people that are here to say they race. Like, you need to pick the side that you want to be on. If that's the side you want to be on, don't race the unlimited class. And then you're like, James is racing this Jeep called Fat Amy. He's got a big-ass bumper on the front of it, and he is not scared to use it. And then that guy was like, this is just BS, man. And it was funny. But I've, I'll never forget getting protested after that race and then the driver's meeting at the next one when you were you were like, oh, my God. This this shouldn't even be an argument. Like, <laughs> I've had a, I had a few of those. Um, there was one in Arizona. I won't mention names, but uh, – the guy came in after being nerfed and he uh he was really upset with the driver that nerfed him the driver that nerfed him and actually ended up taking himself out and then the same kind of thing we found out that uh that you know he brake checked um and you know it ruined the uh, the guy that was trying to pass his race and the guy had been on him for you know almost a near lap so yeah, yeah, it it happens that way, and I just wish people would understand. You know, the time to yeah. the time to race is before you're caught. When you're caught, yeah, especially when you're thirty second intervals, and I'm on your bumper, it's over with. Like yeah. you have been caught long ago. Exactly. So get over right. and then race. But to yeah. try to jackrabbit and race and yeah. drive over your abilities is only going to cause more problems. And I see it all the time in these woods races, man. Like. I was on him, man. I was on him. It's like, but you never got him. <laughs> you know, like, you, you've got to get close enough. Like, the siren from 200 yards back does you nothing. Correct. So, like, you, you're just that guy. Like, you never quite made it, but you're that guy. And then there's people that, like, I'm a big believer in, like, the siren and then a wham all in one swift motion after you know I've been there. And the uh, the general public understands that, when you're racing in an unlimited class, that's kind of how it goes. And having raced at like the best of the desert stuff, it is that way with a Jeep speed, man. Like you, you, you don't understand getting hit by a trophy truck in a Jeep speed that you're not technically supposed to be hit by. I never heard a single thing and I got plowed and it was Andy McMillan. It's like, Holy crap, man. Like that bike, he hit me like 30 miles an hour faster than the Jeep would ever dream about going. And, after I felt him come off the back of the Jeep, like you heard the siren and it was like, Oh my God, like that's legal. That's how this has got to go. You know? And he, he probably was on it, but it was going, he was going so much faster. The siren hadn't caught up. 
dude, it was bad. <laughs> and then, he, like, at the end of the race, he was laughing about it. He's like, man, sorry about your Jeep, dude. I'm like, yeah, I don't even know how the door's still open. You know, <laughs> you the body Jeep, you plow me, man. But good stuff. Good stuff. So. Well, James, I want to say thank you so much for for spending the time today and uh, talking to me and uh, yeah. exp- and you know sharing your history with all of our listeners. And uh, yeah. it was good to catch up with you again. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me, man. And likewise. Yeah. Good, Hope good to, to see you up. again. I don't know if I'm going to get back out to the hammers. Um, it's just become too much of a zoo for me to, to deal with. Yeah. But uh, I hope to catch up with you along the way somewhere. Heck yeah, buddy. Sounds like a plan. All right, James. Take care. All right, buddy. Thank you. Bye. Uh-huh. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you would think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.